All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Booth Review Podcast with Jack Roberts and Patrick Henry. Today, we have a very special guest, the Hall of Famer, the two-time MVP, Rookie of the Year, 19-time MLB All-Star, World Series champion, Cal Ripken. Welcome, Mr. Ripken. Good. Um, I, I guess since I, I only have that to look back on, it sounds pretty good when you introduce me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an honor to speak with you today. Um, I'm going to start off by asking you, uh, I'm sure you hear this a lot, but how difficult was it to play in that 16-year stretch where you played every single game? Um, did you ever play through any injuries or what, what was going on? During that yeah, the, um, uh, I became known for that thing called the streak that uh, lasted 16 straight years. Um, and the, the irony of that is, uh, of course, it was difficult to play uh, every single game, every single year. Um, but I think for most people, um, if they push themselves through the one season and find out that they can play 162 and still finish strong, they've answered the question whether you could or not. And once mm -hmm. the question is answered whether you could or not, then each season doesn't become as challenging. But if you've never pushed yourself to the point where uh, you play a whole season playing every single game, you, know, you really don't know. Most people automatically assume because the, the nature of the season, the everyday uh, uh, part of it, um, you get really tired in the month of uh, August, the dog days of August, as you understood, September. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, if you've never pushed yourself to that far, you automatically think you're hurting your performance if you push yourself through. But once you find out that you can, then, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. So after that first year, after pushing through, I knew it was possible. Yeah, I, I find it to be even more impressive by the fact that the MLB is 162 games. I got such a long, like, stretch of games. And then I'm sure you guys are in the postseason, like, all the time. That's even more games tacked on. You know, that's really impressive. So what's really interesting is uh, the minor league schedule set up for about 144 games. And so it's a whole more month's in the uh, big, big league uh, season that uh, you're really not prepared for. So again, the first time you go through that month of September, you know, you're, you're, you're um, uh, holding on, trying to get to the finish line a little bit. Once you go through that uh, month of September, you know, and to put things in perspective, my first year, I think we played 162 games in 179 days. So if you start to look at it, I mean, um, there's really not many off days. Off days were really reserved for travel days or sometimes, especially when you came back from the West Coast and you lost three hours uh, of time. So we really didn't have downtime or we didn't have off time to uh, recover. So you really have to figure out, um, can I still play day in and day out at less than 100%? And I would say um, maybe um, big leaguers are at 100% on the first day of spring training. And then there's some level of less than 100% because of the nature of the nicks and the knacks, get hit with a pitch, Pulling up, yeah. pulling a little bit of muscle, uh, sliding in wrong at second base. So many things can go wrong. So, again, one of the keys to understanding whether you can do it or not is, can you perform um, in, in, your, in your mind less than 100%? And then how much less? Is 80%? Is 90%? Yeah. And some players just can't perform um, or, or feel like they can perform unless they're, you know, above 90 or 95%. And uh, so those of us who figured out how to compete – uh, and on a daily basis, less than that, um, you know, can can, uh, can be everyday players. What was uh, the most extreme injury you ever played through during the stretch? I know, I know, you got your nose broken during pitch, picture day at the All Star game, but um, I don't know about too many other injuries you faced. Uh, 
It's interesting. Uh, ironically, the hardest injury I played through was after the uh, record was broken. Um, I herniated a disc in my back in July of uh, 1997. And in that particular year, we were the best team in the league, first place from the first day of the season to the last. But in that July stretch, we lost uh, my teammate, Eric uh, Davis, to uh, – he had colon cancer, so he came out. Robbie Alomar got hurt and was, uh, was out. Uh, and it seemed like uh, the Yankees were pushing us and, 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 and were going to catch us. And so when I herniated a disc on a bunt play – I think ultimately I probably did it in the weight room probably uh, two days before. But when I hurt my uh, back, um, they told me that uh, I'd be out six weeks. And I asked the doctor, I said, uh, can I do permanent damage to my back if I'm able to play through it? They said, you can't play through that. You know, because the pain, the pain is constant. It runs down your leg. You start to lose um, strength in, your, uh, in, in that area because of the nerve damage. Um, but uh, I pushed it through the six weeks, and it was the most miserable time for me to play. I played really well during those six weeks, and we pushed the Yankees back to about eight or ten games um, back, and we essentially won the pennant uh, early in September that year. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was the hardest injury I played through. But yeah, um, I had I got my hurt my knee in a brawl with Seattle. That was a couple of years before the 1995. Um, our pitcher hit their guy. Uh, Mike Messina hit uh, Bill Hasselman. He charges the mound. Mm -hmm. I come running in for shortstop to make sure that Mike Messina's okay. And I, I realized he was. So then I turned my attention to the whole Seattle Mariners dugout who was coming, charging out in the field. And I thought I could stop them. Twisted my knee, fell on my back. And I was on the bottom of that pile. So baseball brawls sometimes don't seem, aren't, aren't perceived as that dangerous. When you look at them, there's a lot of jaw and there's a lot of talking. Yeah. Um, but if you're under the bottom of that pile with cleats and people that are throwing punches underneath there, you don't want to be there. So I got myself out and I hurt my knee so bad, I think, the next day when I woke up, I didn't think I could play. And so I called my mom and I said, Mom, I can't put any weight on my right knee. You know, I think, the, the, you know, that it's over. And my mom was about 45 minutes away from me. And my mom and dad showed up uh, at my front door exactly 45 minutes later. And so she stayed with me while things uh, got a little bit better. I worked it out. And ultimately, I played through it. But it's interesting in baseball, if you have a weakness or you have an injury, um, somehow it seems like the ball finds you in the, uh, and tests you right away. Like my right knee was my plant leg. So the worst thing that could happen to me would be going a hole on a backhand and then have to plant my weight and then throw back to first base. Mm -hmm. And it had just so happened in the very first inning, I'm thinking to myself, okay, it'd be great if I didn't get any plays. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the first play I got was a backhand, a two opera in the hole that had some top spin on it. I had to catch it and plant my leg. And while I was doing that, I'm thinking, okay, here goes nothing. If uh, it either holds or it doesn't. And I planted my leg and held it. Man, I threw the guy out at first base. And then I knew I was going to be okay after that. Yeah. But uh, um, a, lot of, a lot of small injuries. Uh, Jack Morris hit me in the elbow uh, on the second day of the season one year. And uh, it's like when you get hit with your funny bone, mm. but like 10 times worse, that I couldn't feel my fingers, you know, uh, um, to hold the ball and throw it. And from time to time, if I slid wrong or I threw it at a different, different angle, that injury bothered me the whole year. So uh, I was able to play through it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a comforting thing. Mm -hmm. So you weren't into 19 consecutive MLB All-Star games. Did you ever get sick of attending the All-Star game and, like, missing out on that break? Well, there were years when uh, things weren't going really well at the All-Star game, and some years you might have been tired a little bit. 
Um, and it would be easy to say, well, let me just take the three days for, for myself. But if you've ever had a chance to go to an all-star game and see how, how uh, great that is, you'll never want to skip the all-star game again. You know, uh, so when I first got in there, um, I was uh, in my second year. I made the uh, all-star team in 83 for the first time. Robin Yount was the starting shortstop. I came in in reserve uh, role, and I was in Chicago. We ended up winning the, the game really big. But all of a sudden, I was teammates of a lot of the guys that I watched growing up. You know, I was, I was a young guy in the clubhouse, and I looked around, and my heroes were in that clubhouse. And so all of a sudden, I was teammates. And I always thought playing the game is, the, is a fun part. I mean, you go out there and you get to do what you do normally in the season. But the real value was just being in that clubhouse with those uh, guys, talking to them, get to know them. And uh, so that part, I never wanted to skip. And so, yeah, um, when you're tired, you think uh, and you're going to fly from Baltimore to San Francisco and then uh, San Francisco back to Baltimore to start the uh, second half. It almost seems like you, you made two unnecessary uh, trips. You had to continue to play. You never got a, you never got a break. But um, yeah. I would rather be at the All-Star game than have three days off. In regards to the All-Star game, um, what do you think about how they got rid of the home field advantage aspect of it pretty recently? So uh, I never really liked the home field advantage of that. I remember the year after I was out. So 2001 was my last uh, year and my last All-Star game was in Seattle. I think the next year was in uh, Milwaukee. So uh, as the All-Star game uh, MVP, I think um, MLB invited me to that game. So I sat with the commissioner in his box. Um, and uh, when the game was tied, I remember going back and forth, the game ended up tied. And essentially they ran out of pitching. You know, they, they didn't want to extend the pitchers anymore, you know, for the season. And they decided to end it in, in a tie. And the reaction was really bad. That's the, the reaction for uh, an all-star game. It was always considered one of the real, real games. It wasn't an exhibition yeah. game. Think about uh, in my time, I remembered Pete Rose running over Ray Fossey at home plate to score the winning run in extra innings. So people continued to play hard, and it was real. It was American League All-Stars against the National League. Which league was better? You know, that was the, the scenario. So when we tied, um, I think they tried to make the game more important, you know, and uh, say that this determines the home field advantage in the, uh, in the playoffs. I never really liked that. You know, uh, I think there's enough pride on the players that come to the game. All you have to do is, uh, is treat it as a serious game. And it's not an exhibition game and you're coming here to play. I played 14 innings, I think, in Pittsburgh one night. And the game ended with Tony Gwynn scoring on a double left center field, I think Moise Salou hit it, and I made the relay throw to home plate, and I thought from my angle he was out. But uh, the umpire called him safe, and the game ended. But, again, I played all 14 innings of, the, of that game, and that's what baseball was all about. So um, I wasn't part of the meetings or anything that decided how do we make this game more serious. Uh, I think all you have to do is say it's a serious game and, and, and treat it that way, and the manager should manage the game that way, not how many people can I get into the game how many can I freely substitute? I'm playing to win. Who are the best players to help me win? And how do I use the players at that point? So, you know, I wasn't an advocate of it when it happened. So if it's gone now, you know, uh, um, I guess that makes me a little more happy. Yeah, I got rid of it in uh, 2018. Now it seems like it's way more of an exhibition kind of feel. Where the players are just know, having the, fun. You know, the way to handle the exhibition type of game is I remember the pregame speeches you know, uh, from the managers that manage that game. And they would always start off by thinking that league thinks they're better than we are. You know, we're here to prove them not, you know, uh, 
Uh, I apologize for those I'm not going to get in the game today um, um, because uh, I'm going to let the game dictate how I manage. You know, we're, we're out there to win, um, and I think that's what all of us want to do. Be ready for the first inning. They would always uh, kind of do something like that. And, and the players in the room, you know, were, were thinking, okay, I'm not going to catch a private plane early. Let me get out of here for two innings. It, you were committed to that game. And so you didn't make any other plans and all that. But once you start making it in an exhibition, once you start saying, I'm going to readily substitute, I'm getting more people in, and, hey, after you're finished, you can just leave, then it, then it, then it loses its meaning to me. Yeah. Um, so you played in Baltimore for your entire career. Was there ever a point where you thought you might get dealt or um, maybe yeah. you wanted to get dealt or sign somewhere else in free agency? Yeah, I never became a free agent. I was 10 minutes uh, before midnight on one time of becoming a free agent. Um, really? And uh, there were special circumstances around that. The time that was the most uh, um, unnerving time to me was uh, in 1988, my dad was the manager of the team. Mm -hmm. um, we got off to an 0-6 start, and then they fired him. And, so, and then we lost 15 more in a row yeah. as a result of that. So we were 0-21. We were, were clearly the worst team in the league and being made fun of and all that. I was mad because I thought the Orioles, uh, you know, should have given dad um, a, a better chance because he stood in line waiting for the, uh, the manager's job all those years. They passed him over when Earl Weaver retired. He should have been uh, the manager then. And then they gave it to him when our, when our team was clearly in a rebuilding site mode, but nobody said we were. So the expectations were to, to win, but we had lost a lot of our players and we weren't as competitive at that time. So what happened after that, I, I was mad. I was a free agent at the end of the year, uh, potentially a free agent. And I thought, you know, the Orioles aren't the same. I'm, I'm going to go someplace else where I can win. You know, I started thinking about where, where I might end up. And if I had to make that decision at that time, I'd have been gone. Um, but as the season went on, the Orioles um, thought they couldn't sign me again. And so they started entertaining offers from other teams as far as a big blockbuster trade. So there was rumors every, every day about me going to Boston for five of their prospects or me going to New York or me going to Toronto. And I found that to be really um, unsettling because I didn't want to go to the ballpark. The reality is I could go to the ballpark today. And they could call me in the office and say, okay, you've been traded to uh, New York and you'd have to go. And so I didn't like that. So as the season went on, I started healing from the, uh, the shock of firing my dad and the reality that we were in a rebuilding process. And the Orioles came back to me and said, can, uh, can we talk about, you know, we want to build around you. You know, at that time I was still, I was 27 years old. Yeah. And uh, so I thought that uh, uh, it made sense to actually, uh, you know, I was young enough to withstand a rebuilding process. And I took advantage of the time. I said, if you want me to commit to you, you'll commit back to me in the form of a no trade clause. And at first they said, we don't do that. And I said, well, that, you know, that's what it's going to take. And the other part about that was I said, and I like to play basketball in the offseason. So you can't, you, I want protection. And if I get hurt playing basketball in the offseason, it's the same as getting hurt, you know, on a baseball field. And I guess I had enough leverage at that moment. They agreed to both of those uh, clauses, which then gave me control of, uh, of my, own, uh, my own destiny, so to speak. Or, and control, I found out, was pretty important to me because, you know, you sign a long-term contract but it's the control of knowing where you're going to be that really uh, helped me, you know, uh, be the player that I was. So I was from Baltimore. I valued playing at home and I valued the stability that it gave me 
in my off the field life. So Absolutely. those decisions happened. But at that moment, um, when they fired my dad, I thought for sure I, I was gone. Yeah. Um, I know you used to play basketball with George Mirasan and um, some, of, <laughs> some of the old Wizards players. Um, what, what was that like playing with a guy who was seven foot seven? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was funny. I mean, I, I was very serious about my basketball. And uh, we had uh, we had some really good uh, players that played in Europe that came over, ex-NBA guys, some current NBA guys. Sam Cassell came out, you know, fairly often. He was in Baltimore. Um, and at that time, he was averaging 20 points in the, uh, in the NBA um, and the starting point guard for, uh, uh, for many All-Star games. Uh, so it was fun to, to see the level of play. And we had a good time playing. So – Every once in a while, we would get someone like George Mirasan, who had an interest in coming up. And the funny thing about George, George is probably the nicest guy you ever want to see. Um, seven seven. Uh, my gym that uh, would be set up, uh, you know, there was a trampoline in the middle of the gym that my daughter Rachel loved to jump on. So after playing basketball, I would set up the trampoline. We'd have these big mats that went on either side of the of the trampoline. But when it's time to play basketball, you fold the trampoline up, roll it into a storeroom. And then you put the mats on the wall. Now, when I'm talking about mats, um, the mats were taller than I could reach. So they were at least eight feet yeah. wide. Yeah. And I remember uh, putting up against the wall, I had to get a ladder out and uh, push them up and then attach them to the wall so they wouldn't fall down while we were playing. So when George, George came early one uh, time, he says, can I help you? And I said, yeah. So he's helping me uh, uh, break down the gym, uh, uh, the trampoline. And when it came time to put the pads up, we just put them up. And he just reached up really easy, flat-footed, and attached the, uh, the things with no ladder. And he, his head was almost looking over. You know, if it's eight feet, he's at seven, seven, seven. <clears throat> it was the funniest thing. And also, he could stand flat-footed, to give you an idea, flat-footed under the basket and dunk with two hands on a 10-foot basket. So I think I can reach eight feet, so, and I'm 6'4". Yeah. And he was uh, seven, seven. It was he easily could reach you know, over 10 feet just with two hands. So it was fun to, uh, to be around him in, in those games. It was fun to compete, you know, uh, at, at, at the level of basketball. And it was a really a good way in the off season because training sometimes can be so mundane and so boring that you, uh, I always thought if you could insert a game and you could do something with a sense of purpose, then you're more apt to do it uh, over and over again. And inviting 12 to 14 players over all the time to play basketball it gave you that incentive to do it uh, as many times. And I loved how it prepared me for spring training. You know, basketball legs translate to baseball legs. Sometimes baseball legs don't right, go to the court right away. You got to get two or three weeks to uh, pounding your legs to get them back to basketball shape. But uh, it, was a, it was a fun part of my off-season life. Did you hold your own out there against guys like Sam Cassell? Oh, and like, sure. wow, I mean, <laughs> that's very impressive. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, it was normal for us to have, uh, you know, the two uh, University of Richmond guys came up. They were, uh, then they, they were 6'10", 6'11". So the, the caliber of play that we had on the floor at, at the times, and many times um, I was one of the stronger 6'4", 6'5", guys. Yeah. And so sometimes my matchup would be somebody that would be 6'10", you know, and uh, so I'm banging away trying to keep them off, um, which for, for me, I was about elbow um, – elbow to my face uh, height, you know, for those guys. Yeah. And uh, I did break my nose probably. You, you mentioned earlier the All-Star game in uh, Philadelphia um, at a team photo. 
you know, uh, I was, we were coming down off the platforms and a platform teetered and uh, Roberto Hernandez threw his fist back to catch his uh, balance and he put his fist right inside of my nose. And so in the middle of the All-Star game, with the game's game getting ready to start, um, I had to go get my nose pushed back into place, at least temporarily. And I played in the All-Star game. But I think I broke my nose probably three or four other times on the basketball court. Yeah. Um, just by being, being uh, elbow height guarding some of these big guys. But, yeah, yeah. I held my own. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have to guard someone like George Mirasan then, like 7'7"? Seven, seven? <laughs> That'd be pretty crazy. <clears throat> no. I never had a chance to guard uh, George. I went down to the beach to play with George on the same team a few times, you know, uh, you know, in some of these over 40 tournaments and all that. After I retired from baseball, I was still uh, um, active in playing basketball. And George, if you ever had an inbound play under the basket – you didn't, have, you didn't have to uh, figure out all these different picks and uh, how to free up a shooter or, or get a shot from the baseline. All you had to do was stand him right in the middle of the lane and you could, you could lob it into him and he, and he would catch it and just drop it in the basket. So he was really difficult to uh, defend in a half-court sense. At that time, he didn't move up and down the court too well, so uh, that became a little bit difficult for him. But uh, the uh, – Playing with guys of size, playing with guys of the speed and the quickness and the ability that, uh, that carried them to the NBA, it was really great to see that up close and personal. Absolutely. Um, did, you, did you see this situation last season with uh, Fernando Tatis, the kid on the Padres, where he, um, he's, I think it, they were up like 10 to, 10 to 4, 10 to 3 in the, in the bottom of the – or the top of the ninth, and he was swinging on a oh an zero and three count. Did you see that? Or? Three, yeah, three and zero. Three yeah, and so count. Three and zero count. Um, you know, normally, you know, a lot of the old school rules have gone by the wayside. You know, some of the unwritten rules. I mean, when you were blowing another team out, you know, uh, you know, it, what goes around comes around uh, in in professional baseball, and the dignity of winning and win, winning without embarrassing the other team was part of, of uh, playing the game. So things like you stop really bunting. You know, if you were up by seven runs or something, you didn't – you stopped stealing uh, bases and all that kind of stuff. Now, over time, those rules have changed. You know, once the power of the home run, a seven-run lead might not be a comfortable lead for someone. And you say, okay, we still got to keep playing the game. And so they started uh, – the team that was behind would still steal and all that kind of stuff. So – some of those rules went out the wayside, but a 3-0 pitch, when you're swinging, take on a green light swing, oh, that, that's another, another way to, uh, to embarrass the uh, component uh, yeah. or opponent. Um, I never believed that you stopped playing, but there were certain things that you stopped doing just in, the, uh, in, in a human sort of way to feel for the other team in a sportsmanship-like way. But I think uh, the newer players and uh, none of that holds true anymore. So uh, I, with all the other things considered, I don't think see how anybody could get mad at uh, Fernando Tatis for swinging three zero in that at that count. Um, um, you shouldn't have been three zero, you know. In some ways, you, you shouldn't have fallen behind. Whatever advantages you have, you know, you, you don't stop playing the game. And so, um, it's an either or. If you go back to the old school way of saying, okay, sportsmanship like this matters, or you say, okay, we'll play any way we want, and if. Uh, we keep pouring it on and beat you 21, 23 to one. Someday it will come back to haunt us and you'll beat us 23 to one and, and you'll enjoy that. So 
Um, that, I think that's the history and the context uh, of that. But I, I don't think any of that stuff applies now. Yeah, and I I also think that it's just like it's the nature of sport isn't to give up, in my opinion. And I I don't I don't like see a problem with that. And he's he's such an exciting young player. I I just don't really think he deserved all the backlash he got at the time from the baseball old guard, if you will. It, se- it seems contra- contradictory in many ways. Either you play the game or you don't. You know, yeah. take, your player, take your players out. If you're losing on the other side. Um, and I don't – it started to change uh, towards the end of my career is that if you, the team that is winning – starts to shut down, you know, your, uh, your bunting and your uh, stealing game and uh, hit and run game and all that kind of stuff, because you're not trying to, to put it in their face, then that team should not do it either. You know, they shouldn't be uh, bunting to get on base and all that. And all of a sudden you start to see, well, we're still playing the game. We're not out of this game yet. Okay. If you're still, if you're still playing the game, then we're going to do that too. And so that's, that's, uh, that's why I think now it's been 20 years since I played. And so if it was happening toward the, towards the end, the evolution of it happening now, I don't, I don't see, see how anybody has grounds to say you can't swing 3-0 um, the way the game is played today. So in regards to how the game's changing a bit, uh, what were your thoughts on Blake Snell being pulled in that game six of the World Series? Because back in your playing day, I feel like starting pitchers were always pitching deep into games and you would never pull a guy who was dealing like that. You know, it was interesting to watch <clears throat> because they made it out to be sort of a new school analysis um, uh, instead of a manager's feel, you know. Uh, and if you look at the stats or whatever else, they had a reason saying after the fifth inning or the sixth inning of the ball game, then uh, the other team hits uh, such and such off of him, and now's the time to get him out. And I totally disagree with that. I mean, the whole purpose of uh, – um, being there as, as a manager and knowing your players all the way through the season is that you have the confidence to extend your starter when he's going really well um, in the ball game. And so if, if you're just making decisions based on what the accumulative numbers are, then you're missing out on what happens. Now I've seen the new school um, extend their pitchers, you know, there for a while. Um, it used to always be commonplace that a starting pitcher in a seven-game series, would go game one, game four, game seven. You know, the Minnesota Twins won two World Series by relying on Frank Viola going one, four, seven, and Jack Morris going one, four, seven. So you, you end up shortening their rest time and you shorten your roster, you know, to roughly three pitchers, three starting pitchers mm-hmm. and their bullpen. Similar to so what the Nats did. And then there for a while, there was numbers to support that by going to a four-man rotation – um, they didn't, the pitchers didn't do um, that well. So then they wouldn't pitch their number one pitcher. I remember Verlander, you know, um, one of the most dominant pitchers with Detroit. I was thinking, okay, they got a much better chance that they can extend him one four seven. But they decided not to do that. They decided to stay with a four-man rotation um, uh, or a five-man rotation, and you missed out on that opportunity. But then all of a sudden you see uh, starting pitchers coming in in relief, and you see uh, – you see them extending closers to, uh, to extra innings and three innings of, of work. So you're starting to see a, a sense of urgency from having the pitchers pitch more now than they used mm-hmm. to. You're not protecting their arm anymore. You're saying, okay, this, this is the end of the season. we got to give it all I got. And that was really an old school principle uh, years ago that kind of the numbers pulled out. But, so it seems like 
what goes around, you know, eventually comes back around and the numbers uh, can say whatever you really want them to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Ripken, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today and sitting down with us. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I had a great time. Yeah, it, it's fun to go back and reminisce. It's, some it's fun to examine and analyze uh, what's happening. I think the game's better now. You know, obviously the, the athletes are a little bit better. Um, they've learned from uh, in different ways by watching different shortstops develop over the time. They've learned how to make different plays. So I'm not somebody that says the game was better when I was there. Um, but some of the small points of the game, I'd like to see them getting back to uh, playing a little small ball, bunting the ball a little bit more, defending, cutting down on the strikeouts, some things that, that have become fashionable, you know, in this, in this numbers age that – actually playing the game and executing, that's how you win. And that's how you win the, uh, the World Series. So I think that's coming back a little bit. Um, but they forgot about it for a while. Absolutely. Well, yeah. uh, thank you very much. You're quite thank welcome. You so much. Yep. I enjoyed it. All right. Great. Have, have a good rest of your day. Yep. You too. Thank Bye. You too. Jack, tell your pops I said hello. Yes, sir. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>